Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. All right, before we even start doing any sort of small talk <laughs> or chit chat, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna introduce the show. Because I found that oftentimes we talk for five minutes and we're like, oh shit, we're here to podcast. Mm-hmm. So, welcome to This Is Gonna Sound Weird. I am Sydney. And I'm Taylor. And each week we tackle a different topic covering all things true crime, paranormal, and everything in between. This week's theme is... College crimes. Dun dun dun. You know what was a crime last weekend? When NC State murdered Clemson in that football game, am I right? (laughs) God. (laughs) Murdered them. Uh, Absolutely. Can you believe that? What is Clemson's, uh, what's their mascot? Tigers. (laughs) When that entire pack of wolves absolutely mauled those tigers. They're crying. Well, even though, uh uh-uh. If you didn't watch the game, people, which, you know, if you aren't from North or South Carolina, you maybe not have. I don't know. Clemson, I feel like, is a pretty uh, big team. Uh, NC State didn't quite murder Clemson, like I said, but we did beat them. And uh, I think it was, like, the first Mm -hmm. time in, like, 10 years or something. So, yeah. Booyah. In your face, Clemson. Suck it, Clemson. I was at the game. I was really regretting not being a student because I'm old and I didn't get to storm the field because oh I just remember distinctly one year for homecoming we were like we're gonna win we're gonna win I don't know what made us think that we were gonna win because we absolutely got destroyed Mm -hmm. uh but our our plan was to storm the field and we never got to do it so you know what but I feel like I feel like the students the current students they've had to go to school through a pandemic that's true It's probably the universe throwing them a bone. They deserved it. But yeah, I wanted to storm the field. I think the year that we thought we were going to get to was the year that I was so sick in the stands that I wouldn't have been able to storm even if I wanted to. Um, But you know. If I can offer one piece of advice, it would be do not drink wine at a tailgate. I would definitely uh, back up that advice. Do not drink a whole bottle of wine at a tailgate. You will absolutely regret it. And I'm talking, you ain't gonna regret it the morning after. You're gonna regret it about 30 minutes after you finish it. (laughs) And for the rest of the night. And into the next day. Because then the next day, you have to think about the fact that you downed a whole bottle of wine at a tailgate. And, uh were incredibly sick for the whole game and i remember there was some guys sitting beside us who kept yelling at me to stand up because that's why we were losing the game that's true uh i can go on record and say yes taylor is 100 percent the reason we lost that clemson <laughs> homecoming game <sighs> many moons ago it was because taylor would not stop sitting down and everyone knows you're supposed to sit down during a game this but is true that's fine that's fine we've forgiven her you know kind of or did we we for, we forgive but we don't we don't forget though no i'll never forget that day it's just it was a true learning moment for me um yep yeah, i haven't drank that type of barefoot wine i don't think since and i don't think i ever will again uh probably for the best yeah but what was i gonna say oh 
this is fun. So in one of uh, the groups that I'm in on Facebook, it's a triangle. It's like the area that we live in, you know, it's a murderino group. Well, apparently, mm -hmm. uh, people are listening to this on Friday morning. If you're listening to this on Friday morning, apparently there's a dateline that's coming out. Uh, this Friday, and it's like North Carolina focused, and they filmed, I think, like all the headshots in this like bar, and the bar is called Revival 1869, and it's like they do like specialty cocktails, and it's like downtown in a uh, a city that's close to me. It's Clayton. It's near Raleigh. Anyways, apparently the bar is haunted. And so they did a little like special, Dateline did their own little special video on the bar itself after they used the bar for like um, the scenes. Anyway, super cute bar, interesting. Look it up um, on the internet. I went one time, they do like jazz music there. It's very swanky. I got uh, like a Tom Collins, I think is what I got. Some sort of gin and something or another. Anyways, I didn't know it was haunted. So now I wanna go back and see if I can catch a ghost buy the ghost a, a drink and maybe they'll materialize maybe shit it's like a real cute place but like it gets real busy and since they do fancy cocktails it can take a while to get your drink and for a girl who typically drinks beer and they just pull it out of the cooler i do get a little impatient i get that i get that well let me go into my story okay because much like this dateline episode that you've just discussed my story, very North Carolina based. So, I am doing mine on the murder of Faith Hedgepeth, which, if you are in our Facebook group, you would know that there has been developments on this case recently. Okay, yes. This will prove if you're a big fan. Now, I saw you post about this. And every, I saw a lot of people posting about this, and I have never heard of it. So I uh, did not research it myself because I didn't have the time. So now you can tell me the story. Well, let me tell you the sources that I used. I used Wikipedia and then WRAL.com. I used a couple of articles from WRAL because it's the local news station. So obviously they covered a decent amount. So... Faith Hedgebeth was born in 1992 in Warren County, North Carolina. And about a year after she was born, her parents got divorced and she was raised by her mother. And her mother had named her Faith because she believed that was just what she needed to raise a fourth child because she already had two sons and a daughter and a husband with a drug problem. Mm. Which, you know what? I, I can't argue with her. I would need some Faith. I probably also would need some patience. So I guess she mm -hmm. needed to have a a fifth child. <laughs> no. So, in high school, Faith was super well-rounded. She was an honor student, a cheerleader, and upon graduating high school, had earned a scholarship to attend University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and planned to be either a pediatrician or a teacher, and she was hoping to be the first of her family to graduate from college. So, I mean, other than the fact that she was going to UNC, it really seems like she was on the up and up. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's no NC State, but, you know, maybe she couldn't get in. It'll do. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, the summer after her sophomore year, Faith was living in some off-campus apartments with a friend, Karina Rosaro, 
and her friend's boyfriend, Eric Jones, and was planning to move to a new apartment once her financial aid money was available for the fall. So Rosario and Jones, their relationship had become pretty violent and the two had ended up actually breaking up in July of 2012. However, that summer, Jones had attempted to break into the girls' apartments twice. Yeah, and the girls had even gone so far as to, like, get the locks changed because they knew he was crazy and he tried to break in. So, like a good friend, Faith encouraged her friend to take Jones to court, which meant that she was granted a restraining order against Jones, preventing him from coming near the apartment. And this also meant that Jones resented Faith for this and reportedly threatened her over the phone that he would kill her if he could not get back together with Rosario. Oh, oh, that is not good. Mm -mm. So, the evening of September 6, 2012, Faith attended a Rush event at Alpha Pi Omega, which was a historically Native American sorority on campus that she wanted to join. And at around 7.15 that night, she left to work on a paper that she had due. So she met her roommate at the library, and they studied together around 8 p.m. Then the two left the library and headed home around midnight. Once home, the two got dressed and headed to The Thrill, which was a nightclub in downtown Chapel Hill. They were there for about an hour, hour and a half, when Rosario started to feel sick and wanted to leave. Security cameras at the club show her and Faith leaving at around 2.06 a.m. However, after the girls arrived at their apartment from the club, their downstairs neighbor had reported hearing three thumping noises, which is very specific, three. Mm-hmm. So, and she compared it to like you know it kind of sounded like maybe a heavy bag had been dropped on the floor or maybe a piece of furniture had been overturned and shortly after hearing this sound faith's facebook page was accessed at 3:40, a text from faith's phone to her ex-boyfriend brandon edwards was sent saying hey b can you come over here please rosario needs you more aha you know. Please let her know you care. Then, three minutes later, another text was sent from Faith's phone to Edwards with the single word, than, which is believed to be a correction for the aha in the previous text. Making the text be, hey B, can you come over here please? Rosario needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care. Which Edwards did uh, didn't reply until around 4.16 a.m. And he simply replied, like, who who sent this, t- the previous text? Oh. Like, so he didn't, he did not believe that it was Faith. Yeah, I mean, it's a really weird text. Like, who, who talks like that in a text? It's really mm-hmm. weird. Also, like, if you know someone, you know how they text, you know what they yeah. are, and they're not going to say... Yeah, and, like, depending on their relationship, like, if somebody texted on my phone to you, you'd be like, who is this? Yeah. This isn't Sydney. Yeah, even when, like, Brandon, sometimes he'll text me, like, while he's at work, and he'll accidentally, like, put something that he would send to, like, his work people. Like, he'll ask me a question, and I'll, like, answer, and he'll be like, all right, 
thank you, but like put the thank you like below the text of it. Like he said in a work text and I'll be like, why did you say it so weird? And he was like, oh, I forgot. I was at work and I thought I was texting somebody at work. Like you can tell little itty bitty things. Even if they would say those words, even if it's just like in a different format than they usually would do it. Yes, I was talking about this because... You know, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is just enthralled with the Gabby Petito case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question of whether or not, like, the certain Instagram posts that she posted or text were actually posted and texted by her. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about that the other night, how, like, you just know how a person texts, specifically, like, what they would and would not say, if they use emojis, like, me if if, don't listeners please do not use this information to kill me (laughs) but i when i text i'm a lowercase texter everything's lowercase yes you are and uh i'm not also i always spell out the word okay it seems less harsh um and i typically never ever put a period after anything because it always seems it also seems harsh uh it also seems harsh I also text, like, I would rather than send you one giant text, I'd rather send you, like, ten small ones. Yeah. That does that also doesn't seem. Like, I just, I feel like it comes across a bit aggressive if they have a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Can you tell we have anxiety? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry, that wasn't supposed to come across so aggressive. Sorry. Apologies. Sorry. <laughs> so, Rosario's phone records show she was also trying to call Edwards around the same time And when he didn't answer, she called Jordan McCreary, who was a soccer player at Chapel Hill, at around 2, sorry, around 4.25 a.m. She left the apartment and got into McCreary's car, later claiming that she believed Faith was asleep in her room and left the apartment door unlocked. Which, here's my issue. Why? If your roommate, if you, whether you think your roommate is awake or asleep, lock the door. Oh, yeah, for sure. I always, yes, always lock the door. Always lock the door. Now, the only time I ever don't is if, like, my roommate is in the kitchen and I turn to her and I say, hey, can you lock this behind me? But, like, at that point, that's on her if she don't lock it, you know? Yeah. But, otherwise, I fucking lock the door. Yep, I lock the door. Sometimes I lock it even when I don't mean to. It's just, like, it's a habit. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Rosario and McCreary went over to a friend's house where she stayed until 10.30 that morning. She then tried to call Faith for a ride home, but when she didn't answer, she called her friend, um, I think it's pronounced Marisol Rangel, who came and took her back to her apartment. The two got to the apartment at around 11 a.m., and when they got into the apartment, they found Faith in her bedroom covered in blood wrapped in a quilt and partially nude. They immediately called 911 and police began examining the crime scene. Semen was collected from the scene and DNA and a DNA profile was developed. Police determined that Faith had died due to blunt force trauma to the head, likely as a result of being hit by an empty rum bottle in the apartment. Mm. However, the town of Chapel Hill obtained a court order sealing the all records and so basically any piece of information or anything that was collected during this investigation was immediately sealed and hidden for the public. 
which people kind of thought that was weird because normally like the town of Chapel Hill is kind of lippy and tells everything, but yeah, they were very hush lipped about this. So right away, police saw Jones as a suspect. He and Faith had a troubled past and he had motive to commit the crime. Police also learned that around 6 p.m. on the night of the murder, Jones texted one of his friends asking for forgiveness for what I am about to do. Then, three days after the murder, he changed the banner on his Facebook page to read, Dear Lord, forgive me for all my sins and all the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. So kind of suspicious. Oh, yeah, that's weird. However... After testing his DNA, they found that it did not match the DNA found at the crime scene. Police also tested the DNA of several men who had been at the Thrill nightclub that night, but found nothing. Days after the murder, nearly $29,000 were raised as a reward for information leading to an arrest, because police had hoped a reward would lead to a quick resolution to the case because just a few years prior in 2008, the murder of Eve Carson, who was another Chapel Hill student, her murder was solved thanks to a $25,000 reward. But not much was found regarding Faith's case, so the governor of North Carolina actually added $10,000 to the reward just two months later. Which the Eve Carson case is interesting So, my sister went to Chapel Hill, and uh, she had actually been accepted to Chapel Hill around the time that Eve Carson's murder had been committed, Mm -hmm. and so that was a huge thing, and I just distinctly remember my mom is minding her business. You know, I mean, it's always tough. Like, your your mom's worried that, you know, you're going off to college, she's going to miss you, la-di-da. Someone we knew, like a family friend we knew knew that my sister was going to Chapel Hill and felt the need to come over to my house, sit my mom on the porch and tell her how it was a horrible idea that she was going to let my sister go to college after this poor girl had been murdered, which I mean, like, my, like, the girl, Eve Carson, you know, she was an all-American girl. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, went to Chapel Hill. You know, mm-hmm. your typical Carolina girl. My sister also, blonde hair, blue eyes, golden girl. So, like, I could see it. But, like, you know, my mom just absolutely went into a spiral and was like, my baby. I don't. Uh, and my dad was like, oh, my dad was like, oh, my God. Who oh, in the heck will come to your house and say that Oh, my God. Oh, Lord. I could Listen, not. if there's one thing people have, it's the audacity. Honestly. And the gall. <laughs> so. Um, anyways, go pack. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so in November, the Daily Tar Heel, which is a student-run newspaper on campus, petitioned the judge to release an early search warrant in the case. But instead, the judge actually ordered the case to be resealed for another 45 days. So, in January, police revealed that the FBI had developed a profile of the man they believed committed the crime. They said it was likely someone who had lived near Faith in the past, had expressed an interest in her, and his behaviors may have changed since the crime, including showing an unusual interest in the case. Mm -hmm. Now, in September of 2013... A year after Faith's murder, 
a new piece of evidence, sorry, no new evidence had been obtained. Like, it really just seemed like the case had kind of stalled. But the case remained sealed. So, in March 2014, several news outlets went to petition the court to have the case no longer sealed. They argued that 18 months had gone by and no one had been charged and no one had been arrested. The public has the right to assume the trail has gone cold or it's not being investigated in a diligent manner. However, the district attorney's office argued that releasing the detailed records at that point would hinder the investigation and the records remained under seal. Which, to be honest with you, I get it. Like, I feel like too often with cases, things get very sensationalized and I Mm -hmm. feel like I I can appreciate the fact that the court wanted to keep things kind of under wraps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't want like everything getting out there, especially, you know, I don't know. It's a college town. I feel like rumors really be spreading. People might start thinking they know somebody who did this and they might be getting a bunch of tips that aren't even related. And if they were maybe still trying to work on the case, maybe they didn't want to like muddy the waters up with all the extra Mm -hmm. hoopla. I mean, I even think about that with, and I know I keep bringing it up, but the Gabby Petito case, because like, like it's so sensationalized right now. And like Dog the Bounty Hunter is in on it. And I just feel like with all this media coverage, I'm like, are we going to be able to, like, on the one hand, you could argue like, you know, with so many people looking for this man, Nick, surely we could find him. But I'm also like, I don't know, because, you know. But if he's still connected, like, if he still has access to the internet and stuff, which presumably he probably does, because almost anywhere you can access the internet. um, All these people are on Facebook being like, Dog the Bounty Hunter's here searching for him. Okay, well, if he sees Mm -hmm. that, he's going to be like, oh, shit, and then he's going to go. Like, y'all are, I mean, if he still has access, like, people on the internet are literally telling him where they're looking for him so mm-hmm. like i don't know yeah. now in july of 2014 the court ordered the records unsealed and media organizations were able to review and report on their findings in september 2014 almost two years after faith's death the autopsy report was released confirming that faith had died of blunt force trauma to the head She had numerous cuts and bruises as well as blood under her fingernails, suggesting that she had struggled with her killer. Among the evidence collected at the scene was a note left by Fate's body with the text, I'm not stupid, bitch jealous. Oh. So, and it was written in sloppy ballpoint pen on what is determined to be a torn off bottom of a paper bag that is commonly used for carry out food and you know there was speculation about whether or not it could be from time out which is like basically like a diner you know like drunk mm-hmm. food for kids but i was like i don't really see what that relevance is it could have been on a cookout tray for all we care yeah i mean if it was some like weirdly obscure restaurant that like you know i feel like some restaurants maybe only have like three regulars that come in maybe that could be helpful but if it's just like a regular, like, typical restaurant is probably not going to be very helpful. Mm-mm. 
So it later comes out that Faith had accidentally butt-dialed one of her friends, and during this call, Faith can be heard crying for help while a female says, I think she's dying, and the male says, do it anyhow. After a long discussion in which the female seems to get angrier, the male and female use the name Eric and Rosie, which is Rosario's nickname. While this information was brought to the police, it was determined that this call was most likely took while the girls were still at the nightclub rather than the apartment, so it kind of was just thrown out. Mm. Because they had, you know, video recordings of them in the nightclub and when they left at 2.06. So on September 23rd, 2016, Chapel Hill Police released an image of what the killer who left the semen at the crime scene might look like based on the DNA profile that was built. According to the image, the suspect was very strongly Native American or European mixed with ancestry of Latino. Mm -hmm. And it was believed that over, like, basically this company named Pardon, they believed with over 80% confidence that the suspect would have a skin tone in the olive range with very few freckles or none at all and black hair. That's very specific. Like, 80, 80, 80% is pretty good. And on September 16th, 2021, nearly nine years after Faith's death, the Chapel Hill police arrested Miguel Oliveras, 28, of Durham, on first-degree murder charges in Faith's death. He had not been a suspect originally, but was identified through DNA sample after he had been arrested for a drunk driving charge in Wake County just back of August of this year. Now, currently, the case is ongoing, but it was released this week that prosecutors do not plan on seeking the death penalty in this case. And Oliveris remains in Durham County Jail without bond for his first-degree murder charge. So... If anything comes out, I will update everyone, obviously. But, I mean, just based off of what this this man looks like, I mean, the DNA profile is pretty spot on. I mean, he is European with, like, mixes of Latino in him. Um, I mean, he don't look like he got any freckles, but... <laughs> who am I to say? I mean, I get burnt and freckled to hell all the time. So, but did they think, did they, so he didn't have any relation before? Like, they haven't come out and said, like... To my knowledge, they have not really determined that they had any sort of relation, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, it could have been that he had seen her before, but, like, maybe she didn't know him, you know, maybe they were in class together, or he had seen her around campus and become fixated on her. Uh, but I mean, which also at this point, I, I assume know. he's not talking. So yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks like I mean, the DNA profile said. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I am happy that they're getting. Hopefully, that this you know will give some closure because I mean, it's been ten years. Yeah, that's a long time. At least mm-hmm. we got DNA around, you know, to help us out these days. 
And it's crazy because, you know, what if somebody like that, like, what if they never got in trouble with the law or anything? Like, it may never get solved because, you know, if they did have any relation or if they end up don't having any relation and they never would have, like, thought of it, you know, sometimes, I don't know, which could be solved one day, but it could have been longer. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Like, had he not been caught drinking and driving? This case would probably just still be unsolved, you know, kind of stagnant. Yeah. Well, thank you for that story. I was curious about what had happened because when you posted that in the Facebook group, I'd never heard of it. But then I was like, you probably knew about it because I know your sister went to UNC and uh, I meant to look it up and then I just never did and I kind of forgot, but I'm glad I know more now. I'll keep a, I'm going to keep a lookout at the news that comes out about it if there's any updates. Oh, I'm sure that there's going to be some. I don't know. Like, nothing's probably going to come out until they go to court. So it might Mm -hmm. not be, I don't know, it may be months. But I would imagine, you know, with them in the past having wanted everything to be sealed, they're probably going to be pretty hush-lipped because they're like, oh my gosh, it's been almost 10 years. Like, we really, we cannot screw this up. Yeah. True. Well... Thank you for that story. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. Are we ready for my story? No. Okay. I'm going to tell it to you anyways. So. All right. I'm ready now. Uh, I'm doing my story on Arliss Perry. My sources. List for... I don't know. Yeah, you said that and I tried to... I was like, I have no idea who that is. No, you probably don't. Um, I didn't, but you will soon. So. Listfirst.com, 10 Creepy Unsolved Mysteries from College Campuses, Wikipedia.com, Palo Alto Online.com, it was an article by the Palo Alto staff, InsideHook.com, it was an article by Steve Huff, and uh, ABC7News.com, an article by Dave Louie. So, Arliss Perry was born in Bismarck, North Dakota. And in high school, she met a boy named Bruce D. Perry, and the two became high school sweethearts. Um, And in August of 1974, when Arliss was just 19, the two got married, and she moved to the Stanford University campus with her now husband, Bruce, who was a pre-med sophomore student on the campus. And at this time, Arliss was working as a receptionist at a local law firm. And I hope I'm saying her name correctly. I did watch a video um, where they said it like this. I was saying Arliss, but they said Arliss, so I'm going to go with that. Um, so, about one night, six weeks after the two had gotten married, um, and it was October 12th was this night, 1974, uh, Arlise and Bruce got into a little bit of an argument. Apparently they were arguing over like the tire pressure in their car. Probably just like, you know, sometimes like I know me and Brandon, we just get agitated with each other and you argue about like dumb little stuff. Like yesterday we was arguing about mm-hmm. what gas station we were trying to go to. Um, and so they had a little argument, but I guess this was causing Arliss some more stress than usual. So she told her husband that she was going to go to the uh, Stanford Memorial Church because she was pretty religious and she was just going to go, you know, go to church and go pray for a little bit, Um, which I guess I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I don't know if she was Catholic, but whenever I think about like, 
oh, I'm just going to go into a church and pray. I feel like Catholic churches are always just kind of like open. You just kind of walk in, go up to the altar, do a little praying, and then leave. I'm sorry, but you ain't catching me at a Baptist church at nighttime. First off, there ain't nobody there. The lights are off, and it's spooky as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so spooky. The stained glass windows are so spooky. Mm-mm. My uh, friend, like my best friend growing up, her mom was a secretary at our church. And so a lot of times if I was like at her house or something, we would have to go to the church and like print out bulletins and all sorts of stuff like that. Being in that church at nighttime, mm-mm. ain't mm-mm. not the vibes. It was so scary. First off, a lot of churches like where I live would also just get robbed. So it was scary on that front, too. <laughs> um, Damn. Well, I mean, it's one thing to rob to rob a church. I mean, that's just straight to hell. Yeah. Also, I'm like, what you gonna get? It ain't like they got hella money at the church. They they trying to get that wine, the body and blood of Christ. They're trying to see if that offer and play got a few quarters in it. Uh, but on this night, Arliss uh, went to the church to pray. And it was around 1130 when she went. Um, but around 3 a.m., Arliss still had not returned home, and so her husband was, like, getting pretty concerned. So, he called the Stanford police and reported her missing, and the officers, uh, from the Santa Clara Sheriff's Office went to look for Arliss at the church, but when they got there, the doors were locked, and they didn't see any, like, unusual activity, so they left the church. Um, the next morning, though, on October 13th, it was around 5.45 a.m., uh, a campus security guard named Stephen Crawford went into the church, and he unfortunately found Arliss dead near the altar, and her body was, like, under some of the pews. She was found face up, her hands were folded across her chest, she had been stabbed through the back of her head with an ice pick. And the ice pick was still sticking out of her head, but the handle had been broken off of it and the handle was missing. Yeah. Along with this, there were also signs that she had been choked and beaten. And this is probably a little bit of a trigger, trigger warning for like sexual assault. Um, her body was found um, naked from the waist down and a three foot long altar candle was still inserted into her vagina, indicating that her killer had sexually assaulted her with it. And there was another one placed in between her breasts. So like, I don't even, I don't know what a three foot long altar candle, um, is but i would assume that uh it would be very painful uh what happened to her and one of the weirdest parts though was that her jeans were taken off of her body but they had been placed across her legs in a diamond shaped pattern uh so i guess they were kind of like folded weirdly i don't know how to do it uh-huh but they were folded in a way that was like very strategic so, when the security guard, Stephen Crawford, spoke to the police following the discovery, he told them that he had locked up the church that night a little after midnight, uh, and when he went to lock it up, he didn't notice any activity inside, and he also said that around 2 a.m., he rechecked the doors of the church to make sure they were still locked. Um, 
But he told police that that morning when he went to the church around 5.45 to open it, um, when he discovered her body, he found that the west side door of the church had been open and that it seemed like it had been forced open from the inside. So kind of indicating, you know, maybe somebody had been like inside the church when he locked the doors. Um, and then maybe like he escaped or got out afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. but once the investigators got into the church, they found semen on a kneeling pillow. So like, I assume it is a Catholic church. Those little pillows, I guess, um, that you Mm -hmm. kneel on so your knees won't hurt on the ground. Um, so they found that on one of those pillows near her body, um, which was further evidence of a sexual assault. And they also found a partial palm, partial palm print on one of the candles, So, you know, they had some DNA. They had some stuff to work with. Uh, So once the investigators had this evidence, they tested the semen of both Bruce Perry, her husband, and uh, Stephen Crawford, who was the security guard. And neither were a match. And they also weren't a match for the palm print. Um, And at first, even though, you know, that the semen and the palm print didn't match. Like, I feel like those, they're not always too reliable. So at first they were still considering Mm -hmm. that her husband was the first suspect. uh, Because obviously that's the husband's always first suspect. The husband always does. The husband's always did. And you know, they had some, they had been fighting that night. So who knows? Um, However, they were able to rule him out as a suspect. And at this point, um, the police kind of, and they weren't focusing too much on Crawford at this point, um, because, you know, his palm print didn't match. They didn't see him as having a motive or anything. So they kind of just went and they were looking to see who could have been around the church the night of the murder. Um, and so on the night of October 12th and the morning of the 13th, there were at least seven people that were known to be around the church, two of whom were the Perrys, and four others who were able to be identified and one was not able to be identified. Um, but a person passing by the church during the night said that they saw a young man who was about to go in the church around midnight and he had sandy colored hair, he was not wearing a watch, and he was of medium build and about five feet tall. And this was of some interest because the day before Arliss was killed, there was allegedly a man who had come to her work at her law firm, and he was an unidentified blonde man, and it was said that they'd had a heated conversation that left Arliss visibly upset. Um, However, this didn't really go anywhere. They didn't know who he was. Um, It just... They didn't really have anything to go off of. And so while the police had some potential ideas, there were no solid suspects. But, you know, this was the 70s. And so rumors began to spread that um, Arliss had actually been murdered in a satanic ritual by a cult in the area called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And this really came from the fact that she was, her body was oddly laid out. Like her arms were across her chest. She had these candles Mm -hmm. like still like placed on and inside of her. And her pants were like placed in this weird shape. And she was in a church. So it was like, you know, people, it was the satanic panic, all that. Yes, this very much reminds me of, what was that one case? Um, where the girl was murdered and left on the top of a mountain. And they were um, like, yes. it has to that be Satan. That was the Jeanette De Palma case that I covered. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that was, I can't remember what episode number it was, but it was like the what got you interested in true crime episode. Um, yes. And that was, if you haven't listened to that, yeah. that's a very good mm-hmm. That's very good. Because that was the first podcast episode I'd ever listened to. And actually, um, in some of the articles for this case, it did mention her case um, because they were, like, very similar in that way. Uh, So, a few members of the cult were reportedly from Arliss's hometown of Bismarck, North Dakota. So, maybe they thought that could be a connection. Um, But this cult... Apparently, I'm not really sure what kind of cult. Like, it, I don't think it was necessarily a cult. It seems more like of an occult type of thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But apparently, Charles Manson and David Berkowitz. Um, David Berkowitz is also known as the son of Sam. Uh, they were both believed mm-hmm. to have been members of the cult. And so Berkowitz himself, he was, like, in prison at this time. And I'm sure one day we'll cover him. But if you don't know who he is, he was a murderer who was active in, like, New York around the time. Uh, so he actually enhanced this theory of the cult being involved because he wrote letters to like the police department regarding the murder, implying that the cult was actually responsible. Um, but nothing really came of this lead and it's kind of thought that he was just toying with investigators after he heard about it, which probably makes sense because if Mm -hmm. you know anything about him, he was like, he was just irritating and just like a, a douchebag. Like, he would, like, make stuff up. Like, when he said a dog was possessing him. He, it was like he always wanted to be a part of the story and be, like, famous or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either... He wanted to sensationalize things very yeah. much. Even if he wasn't involved, he somehow needed to get involved, you know. Um, so, at this point, while the DNA... While the police did have DNA evidence, um, because, you know, they had the semen, they had, like... They had evidence that they couldn't use it in the 70s because the technology wasn't evolved enough at this time. And the first case that actually used DNA wasn't until the late 1980s. Um, But they did keep the DNA, which is good. They didn't, you know, just throw it out and be like, oh, this, we don't need this. Which I guess this was the 70s. It wasn't like the 1920s. Um, But with no further leads, the case remained open. But it was routinely reviewed by the cold case unit of the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office and the Sheriff's Office. And the case remained cold for 44 years until in 2018, after uh, it was 44 years after the murder. At this point, investigators, like I said, they had still been investigating. And they were pretty sure at this point that the murderer was actually longtime suspect in the case, Stephen Blake Crawford, who was the security guard who had found Arlise in the church. Now, it's unclear as to why exactly they thought he was a suspect. I guess they had never fully ruled him out because, as I said, they did test his semen and the handprint, but it, you know, can't. It's not fully reliable. So in 2018, the police were able to test the DNA and conclusively prove that it was, in fact, Crawford who had murdered her. So on June 28th, the police had a warrant for the arrest of Crawford. On this day, they went to his apartment and they made verbal contact with Crawford through the closed door before entering the apartment. However, when they opened the apartment, they saw Crawford 
and there are conflicting accounts. One account says that he tried to stall them and told them that he needed to put on some clothes. Another account says that when they opened the door, they saw him holding a handgun. But either way, the police left the apartment to let him either put on his clothes or try to regroup because he had a handgun. But at this point, the the deputies left and they were still close. You know, they're still near the apartment. And a short time later, they heard a gunshot come from the apartment. When they went back into the apartment, they had found that Crawford had shot himself in his bed and he was pronounced dead at the scene. And this case, uh, when I was reading, they kind of likened him and the way he was kind of caught to um, the Golden State Killer. Uh, what was it? Joseph mm-hmm. D'Angelo. Was that his first name? Um, because, you know, he was caught because of DNA as an elderly man. Um, and Crawford, by all accounts, was considered a normal guy. He didn't set off alarms for people. His landlord said he was a good guy. He never caused any problems. But weirdly, she said that he also had some, quote, nice bronze statues of horses with Indians on them, which seems innocent enough. Got some statues of some horses. Mm -hmm. But these statues were actually part of some other crimes that Crawford had committed while working at Stanford in the 70s. At the time, he was stealing rare books and art from Stanford's libraries, and he was arrested for the crimes in 1992. Um, which, you know, which is probably how they had his DNA, like, on the books, but maybe they still hadn't, like, pieced it together at that point. Um, but being a thief obviously doesn't really equate to being a killer. And he, he had a motive, seemingly, to steal from the school because he was a military veteran. Um, and in the early, in the 70s, when he was working at the school, at first he had been an armed police officer, but for some reason he was demoted to an unarmed security guard. And so he started stealing from the school as an act of revenge for being demoted. But like I said, this motive doesn't seem like it would stretch to the the terrible murder. Like those two, they just don't really relate. Like I don't think you, uh, you know, progress that far. Um, now, even though the motive may, may not be known, it's still not known because um, he shot himself on the day he was supposed to be arrested. Santa Clara County Sheriff Mm -hmm. Lori Smith is actually open to the possibility that he could have more victims than just Arliss um, making her murder more than just like a one-time killing because around the same time, there were some other murders on the campus that apparently are still unsolved. Um, There was a strangulation and murder of a 21-year-old Stanford student grad. Uh, Her name was Leslie Perlov. There was also a murder later that same year of a physics student named David Levine or Levine. A woman named Janet Taylor, who was 21, was found strangled and barefoot in a ditch in early March 1974. And all of these, they haven't been able to actually attribute to him, but uh, the sheriff's office thinks that there could be a correlation, which honestly, I could see, um, because it's really weird that all of those happened and all of them included some sort of strangulation. Very odd. The interesting thing, though, to me is all of those, you know, they're kind of just like very simple. Why do so much fanfare with this most with this one? You know, was yeah. it just because 
it was in a church and he saw the opportunity like like why do all this i really don't know one source said that he may have pulled the whole like satanic uh you know, like acting like it was a satanic ritual to try to throw the investigators off. Because since it was the 70s, he thought, well, maybe if I make this look like it was some satanic ritual, then they clearly aren't going to think it's me. They're going to think it's some, you know, crazy satanic cult. So some places said that they thought it was that. And also when they like searched his house after he um, had killed himself the day he was supposed to get arrested... Turns out he had already been contemplating suicide for a while uh, because he had actually had a suicide note that he had written like two years before he even got caught. And he also had some books in his house, like books that were written about her murder because, I mean, this was 44 years after she was murdered. So clearly um, he was fixated on it and he was not doing well. But yeah, they said that they thought the whole fanfare may have been to like throw the scent off because also he clearly was there that night. Like he had to be there because he was a security guard. And so um, maybe he thought he was going to be a suspect for sure. And so he had to like throw him off Mm -hmm. the trail. Um, Yeah. But while this case is obviously horrible, um, justice and justice really wasn't truly brought in my mind because, you know, he didn't ever have to go to prison or go through the trial and we didn't really get a reason why he did this. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the silver lining is that the murder was finally solved and created some sort of closure. Um, but on a video I watched, the, her sister said that it did create some closure for her. Um, her mom, who's now in her 80s, or at the time, like 2018 was in her 80s, she said that it wasn't really bringing closure to her. And the saddest part was that her dad, he was like 90. He had died either a couple months or a couple years before he had gotten, um, this guy had gotten caught. And her father's dying wish was to find out what had happened to his daughter. But unfortunately, Aww. he passed away before that. Um, but that is the sad and tragic story of the murder of Arlise uh, Perry. And I'd never heard of that story. And it was crazy. We've had a long pause for Sydney's long yawn. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, that is, ve- that is very sad. Um, but yeah. I mean, um, it's I guess it's kind of similar to the case that I did where like, you go through such a long period of time where you don't think you're going to get any sort of closure. And then there mm-hmm. is, but it maybe isn't quite what you thought it was going to be because I mean, to me, I don't, I don't know if I believe that he killed all those other people. I mean, it's possible, yeah, but I don't know. It just seems odd. Yeah. This one seems like to me, almost like a, uh, like a, opportunity crime like I don't know I don't know what actually happened but it seems to me like maybe he did go in to close up the church and maybe he tried to make a move on her or something happened and then who knows or maybe he had some sort of fantasy and he just thought that this was the perfect moment since I mean I'm sure she was probably the only one there at the time and I don't know power trip man And he was also probably a little still pissed off 
And it might have still been a little bit of like, screw this university, I'm going to do this terrible thing when I have control over at least this one situation, which is locking the doors of this Mm -hmm. church. I don't know. We'll never know because unfortunately or fortunately, he is dead. Uh, But anyways, that, those stories were sad and heavy. But next week, our stories will not be so heavy. Hopefully, because our stories are boozy ghosts, which is basically uh, ghost stories that have to do with, you know, bars, like a haunted bar, a ghost in a bar, a really drunk ghost. I don't know, whatever you can come up with. Mm-hmm. A ghost in a pub. Mm-hmm. You know, pir- pirate's pub. Pirate's yeah, ghost. Yeah, like pirate. Yeah, that would be fun. Anyway, so it'll be more lighthearted next week, hopefully. But Cindy might find a way to make hopefully. it uh, horrible. Yeah, listen, if, <laughs> if there's one thing I love, it is bringing up a controversial story. Um, I did, I was doing some research and I found a case about Virginia Tech. And then all I could think of was the Virginia Tech shooting. And I said, no, 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 mm-hmm. we can't do this this can't. week. Oh, well, I hope, I don't know if there's any controversy at Stanford, but if there was and is, I apologize. I did not know. No. Uh, but yeah, follow us on all of our things, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, you know, shoot us an email at this is going to sound weird at gmail.com and Taylor likes to say this, but I'm going to steal her thunder, rate and review us on Apple podcast, five stars, preferably, uh, tell a friend, mm-hmm. tell an enemy, tell yep. a stranger, tell your boss. Yeah, probably don't tell your mom, though. Unless you got a cool uh, mom. I'm, or do. Or do. You got a cool mom? She likes a little bit of cussing here and there. We're, we're down with her. Listen, a listener is a listener. True. So we're not going to discriminate. mm Not here. Not ever. All right. Is that it? <laughs> That that is that is it. That is it. Um y'all have a great week. We'll see you next time. Stay weird. Goodbye. Goodbye.